0: nice to be with you again. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 31? It's the very last chapter of 1 Samuel. Do you remember, any of you remember, youth group will probably, you remember the um, song that was played while the um, youth video was being played? Do you remember that? Strange things have happened this year, haven't they? It's been coronavirus... Um, The All Blacks have won two out of their four games. Um, The American elections have gone on and on and on and will continue to go on and on and on, probably in court. And rap music is being played at (laughs) Hakanui. I never thought I'd see the day. might never see it again either. Okay. I enjoyed it, actually. Let me, let me read from 1 Samuel chapter 31, the very last chapter of 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan and Binadab and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, "'Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me.'" But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messages throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroths and fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. When the people of Jabesh-gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them then they took their bones and burned them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted 7 days my father passed away in 2007, and I remember standing by his hospital bed in Palmston North, and that was where he was to die, and he said to me, there were other people around as well, but he said to me quietly, has my day finally come then? And when I heard that, there were other five people in the room who didn't hear it, I thought about what must be going on inside his mind and heart. I thought about how incredibly alone he must have felt at that point. Here he was, facing death, surrounded by other people, and yet incredibly alone. No one else in the room was dying, just him. You know, death is like that, isn't it? None of us have ever experienced it, so you can't actually kind of nail me on this. <laughs> but death is an incredibly lonely thing. It's not like someone can come along and say, it's all right, we all face it together. We have to face it alone. There are things in life that we have to face alone, and death is one of them. Death is the final one of them. We all know this, but we don't like to think about it, do we? In fact, six months before my father died, I asked him, I said, Dad, have you ever thought about where you're going when you die? And straight away he said to me, I don't like to think about it. And we don't, do we? We don't like to think about death. When my dad asked me, In that hospital room, has my day finally come then? I thought about this man who'd lived a long life. He was 86 years old. He played halfback for the Aurora Rugby Club down in the Mano when he was young. He was in the Second World War, at least towards the end of it. He was in Japan with a peacekeeping movement a year after the Hiroshima bomb went off. He was there for 12 months. He was a successful farmer, and he retired in Palmerston North, which is where he died. And now his journey was over, and and it, and it felt to me a little bit like, you know, when you go on a journey somewhere, I think of boarding school, you know, you get up on a Monday morning if you'd been home for the weekend, and you'd go on that long journey back to boarding school, and and, and you were kind of dreading the end of that journey, but eventually it would come. And that's how I felt about my dad, that he had journeyed through his whole life and done all sorts of things, but now his day had finally come. Now his day had finally come. And here we meet a man in this last chapter of 1 Samuel whose day has finally come as well, Saul, King Saul. We first met him, I preached the sermon here. We first met him when he was looking for donkeys, just an ordinary guy. And then his life changed forever when Samuel anointed him as king. And he led Israel into countless numbers of battles. And then David came along, and Saul grew jealous and envious. Saul was the man who was ruling the country, but he himself was ruled by his own emotions. Reminds me of someone else this week who has been a ruler of a country. And he tried many times to kill David. You see, Saul had real heart problems. He cared too much about what people thought of him. And eventually God took his spirit from him and replaced it with an evil spirit. Probably not the most flattering of biographies if there was a biography on Saul and you were to read it. But now that's all behind him. And like my dad, he's facing the question... On this mountain called Gilboa, with the Philistine army surrounding him, has my day finally come? Then, you see, Israel—you'll know because you've been through First Samuel. Israel, um, the Philistines are Israel's old enemy, and they're in battle again, and Israel are getting hammered. There are casualties everywhere, and what's interesting is that the Philistines have been at war ever since the beginning of 1 Samuel, going back into the book of Judges. And you remember the reason that Israel wanted a king in the first place? So they could defeat the enemy. So they could defeat the enemy. And Saul was the chosen one. Saul was the one that was chosen as king. But now at the end of 1 Samuel, the Philistines are still there. Having a king has not helped them. Verse 2 tells us that the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his three sons. But you get the very distinct feeling that things aren't going to end well here for Saul and his sons. And verse 3 begins, the fighting grew fierce around Saul. Just imagine yourself in that situation. Put yourself on the hill. Put yourself in Saul's armor. The enemy is all around you. The fighting is fierce. It sounds like Saul and his sons are increasingly being backed into a corner. And then it says that the archers overtake Saul and critically wound him. We don't know how many arrows he's taken. Perhaps an arrow in the leg, an arrow in the shoulder, an arrow in the neck, an arrow in the chest. He's critically wounded. wounded. His day is almost up. His day has finally come, and he knows there's no way out of this. He, and, but he wants to choose the way. And so he asks his armor bearer, he tells his armor bearer, grab your sword, run me through, kill me. Don't let these Philistines do it. That, they'll just mock me and gloat over me, and I don't want that. But his armor-bearer refuses. And so Saul takes his sword as a last resort and falls on it. Dies. That's it. And the day after the battle, we read, remember, that the Philistines are wandering over the hillside, as I guess the conquering enemy would do after the battle wandering back over the hillside on which the battle was fought. And then they come across Saul and his three sons, all dead. And verse 9 tells us, They cut off his head, that Saul's head, and they stripped him of his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. Saul's death is good news. For the Philistines. The enemy's been conquered. But this phrase here in verse 9, look at it. It says, to proclaim the news is exactly the same phrase that occurs 54 times in the New Testament to mean preach the gospel. Exactly. The same phrase. The Philistines are running around the country preaching the gospel that King Saul is dead. If we go to the New Testament for just a moment, Luke chapter 8, verse 1, actually sounds a little like what the Philistines were doing. It says that Jesus went throughout the cities and villages proclaiming or proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Going throughout towns and villages, just like the Philistines did. Proclaiming the good news, just like the Philistines did. Telling news of a king, just like Jesus was doing. The only thing is, this king was dead. Another verse that sounds more like what the Philistines did was in Acts 5, verse 42. Every day in the temple, Philistines were going throughout the temples, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching the good news that Christ is Jesus. Paul said in Romans 10, verse 15, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! And we could go on for 51 other verses. That's how the Philistines are now reacting to those who are bringing good news. That Israel's king is dead. Whenever a messenger comes and brings good news, you think, oh, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Some background here. This might be interesting to you. You might not have realized that the term preach the gospel was used by pagans that it wasn't the first time picked up by christians first thing in the ancient world people it's not like the west not like the west today the east is still the same but everyone believed in gods plural you didn't have to go around convincing people that gods existed today in the west we write books we read books we go to seminars we listen to debates on the existence of god That's weird to people in the ancient times. What do you mean that gods don't exist? Everyone believed in the existence of gods. And the next thing is, is that the kings of the various nations were all believed to image the gods. You see, the king on the ground was an image, a visible representation of the visible god or gods in heaven. And so to defeat the king on the ground was to win a major victory against the gods of that nation, you see. So when you went to war against a nation, you were not just going to war against their army, but you were going to war against their gods. This is the Old Testament world in which Israel lived. To win on the battlefield, on the ground, was to win in the heavens Above. And you see, victory was a sign that your gods were better than the gods of the side you were fighting. might sound a little bit strange to us, but completely normal in the ancient world. One other thing. Every nation had their temples. I do traveling in Asia. I think I've told you that before. Temples are all over the place. You talk to people in Asia about this, it's just like, yeah, we know this. Every nation had their temples. Inside temples were stone, wooden idols. They were representations, just like the king was. They were representations of their gods in heaven. This explains why the Philistines went throughout the country, including their temples, proclaiming this good news. You see, it's not just that Saul has been killed... But we have defeated Israel's God. Our gods are better, in other words. You see, you just imagine being a Philistine, and you imagine hearing this good news. A little, probably a little bit more background would help. You see, people believed in the ancient world that the gods affected were responsible for things like the weather, agricultural production, health, wealth, food, all of life. You had to have many gods to take care of that, but that's what the gods were there for. And so when your army comes back from war to say they've defeated the enemy, this is really good news for your life. In other words, you must be worshipping the right god or gods. It impacts your life. But if one side is proclaiming good news, what does that mean about the other side? It means the other side must, must be experiencing bad news, right? And the bad news is here is that Israel's king is dead. Saul, his final day has come. Look at verse 7. Notice how all of Israel react. I'm talking about all the civilians, Not just Israel's army, but all the civilians in Israel. Verse 7. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and they fled. See, what does that tell you? It tells us that their confidence is absolutely shattered. Their hope is gone. Their king is dead. And along with it, their hopes and dreams. Remember that, it, remember that Israel had pinned their hopes on Saul. Remember again, back to 1 Samuel 8:19. 19. Israel told Samuel, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Give us a king. Give us a king and we can finally start to win battles. We can finally start to live in peace. And Saul is the man who's given that job. And when Saul is announced as king at the end of 1 Samuel 10, in verse 23, it says that as he stood among the people, he was head and shoulders above all the rest. You can imagine all the Israelites standing there going, this is our man. Maybe that's what's happening, at least for half of America right now. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! He's where our hopes and dreams lie. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that's going to take down our enemies. He's the one we are placing our trust in. Long live the king. And now that king is dead. His day has finally come. Let me ask you a question. Let's come down from Mount Gilboa to Hukunui. What happens when the thing in your life that you have been trusting in to bring you life, dies. What happens when the thing in your life that you have been trusting in to bring you life leaves you? You die as well. I remember meeting a guy a few years ago back in Brisbane, got to know him a little bit, went out to coffee a few times, became kind of friendly, he was from the UK, probably in his lower 30s, I guess, had a PhD from Britain, came out with a young baby to Australia to make a life, and I came into his life, probably after 12 months of being in Australia, he hadn't been able to find a job, put in 100 applications, I think, no job, super qualified, super intelligent. Young guy and just nothing for him. And I remember having coffee with him one day in a cafe and he said to me, I f-, and, and, and you could kind of just see, the, see him starting to tear up, he said, I feel like I have died. I ached for him. I ached for him. I feel like I have died. This day had not finally come, but it may as well have. Because everything that he was looking for life in was not there. And consequently, he felt dead. That's Israel. That's Israel. Their hope, their confidence has gone. He's died on the hill of Mount Gilboa. He was the one they were putting their trust in, their hopes in. He was the one that they were looking to for life. And how do they react? They flee their homes, they abound in their towns, the places where they live. They're effectively saying, we can't go on living, at least not as we normally have. Their hopes have been dashed and they can't see a future. That's what happens when the thing that we are trusting in, putting our hopes in, suddenly disappears from our life. We feel like we've died We might not flee our home, but we might give up. We might feel hopeless. We might even go looking off, we might even go off looking for something new to replace it, to put our trust in. You know, one of the greatest deceptions, I believe anyway, of Satan is to have the church think that head knowledge of the gospel, the good news, is enough while we go about our lives, placing our faith in all manner of things. I'll say that again. I believe that one of the greatest deceptions of Satan is for the church to have head knowledge of the gospel, a belief in that gospel, and yet day to day go about our lives, putting our faith in other things that we could variably that we could invariably call good news remember for a moment who israel are god's chosen people they worship god they offer him sacrifices regularly if you know your bibles you know that they believe in him if you walked up to an israelite on the street and you said who is yahweh they would say they would just rattle off their doctrinal statement. I would say, look at the songs that we sing about him. We pray to him regularly. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. And one day we look forward to him bringing in righteousness, salvation, the kingdom. But you see, all this is at a confessional level. You remember when Jesus said to the Israelites, in, uh, sorry, to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, he says, "They worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me." It was a confessional type of faith. It was all head knowledge. But as soon as their king is gone, as soon as there is what they are really placing their hope in is gone, then. Their confidence is gone. Their hope is gone. And their true faith is exposed. Just imagine for a moment that Israel had won. Just back in 1 Samuel 31, just imagine that I'd won the battle. Saul didn't die. What might their reaction have been? Can you guess? Of course you can. Joy, obviously. A victory parade like they always did, going back into Jerusalem. And what? Praising God. But it would all be hollow, wouldn't it? You know it'll all be surface level. It's just all head knowledge. It's good news. But it's only in the head. Someone came up to me years ago at church and said, I know the gospel is good news, but I don't feel like it is. We sometimes get skeptical when people talk like feel, because we're all about the head, about the mind. What he was meaning was, I know it in my head, but I don't experience it in my heart. And what I'm suggesting is that that's Satan's greatest deception, that it's okay just to experience it in the head, but not in the heart. How much of the church is like that, do you think? How much of the church would say it's all head knowledge? Gary gave me a book. You're getting worried now, aren't you? Gary gave me a book two years ago called Enjoying God. And I don't remember I was talking about it at the time. For some people, that's a foreign concept. Enjoying God. You enjoy a vanilla latte, you enjoy an all-black win, you enjoy a good steak, you enjoy, you know, a rap video, whatever it is. <laughs> but enjoying God? I mean, isn't God just like doctrine in the head? kind of thing? Faith? For others, it's, I mean, it's nice to enjoy God. It's cream on the cake, but it's not essential. Israel are an example of someone just like that. It's all head knowledge, but no enjoyment of God. No real faith in God. And we know that. How? How? Because when the person they are pinning their hopes and dreams on dies, they die too. A. W. Tozer, you've heard of him, he says we have substituted theological ideas for an arresting encounter. We are full of religion, religious notions about God, but our greatest weakness is that for our hearts there is no one there. In other words, what he's saying is that we have all of these great ideas about God in our heads, but for our hearts, there is no one there. I would put it like this. What he means is that we believe in good news as theological ideas in our heads, but our problem is that there is no good news for our hearts. And for that, we go looking elsewhere. We trust in Jesus to get us to heaven, but during the week, we place our faith and trust in other things to get us through the day. Does that make sense? We trust in Jesus to get us to heaven in our heads, but during the week, we have these other gospels, you see, that we place our faith in to get us through This life. And when we lose those things, it can feel like we have died. It can feel like our day has finally come. And it's most extreme. We have a massive meltdown. And we're seeing it right now in America, aren't we? Massive meltdown. Now, you may ask, how do I get good news from my head to my heart? It's a great question. Two things. Firstly, let's be clear on the good news. The last verse of 1 Samuel, have a look at it, ends in a cemetery with Israel burying their king under a tamarisk tree. It's, an, it's the last verse of 1 Samuel. It's an interesting way to end a book. It's a somber note. It's a sense of hopelessness. It's a sense of Israel's final day. But you see right around the corner is another king. Turn over to 2 Samuel and just read into, you don't need to, but read into a few chapters there and we, Israel, have another king, David. And from David's line will come a king to rival all kings, the son of David, Jesus. You've heard about him before. And he will come and announce the good news of the kingdom of God. Notice, the good news of the kingdom. In other words, that means a king. The good news of a king. What do kings do? Kings reign. And he can announce that. Why? Because he is going not to Mount Gilboa, but to the hill of Calvary. Not to live, but to die. Not to be defeated by the enemy, but to defeat the enemy. The three big ones, sin, death, and Satan. Satan. You see, death is not the final day for Israel, and death is not the final day for those of us who embrace that good news. And when, we think, and when things that we trust in, when things that we pin our hopes in leave us, it is not our final day. The good news is that the enemy has been defeated and that Jesus reigns. secondly, When something that you are, and this is, hopefully this is very practical, when something that you are placing your confidence in your life, when something that you are placing your confidence in deserts you, don't run from the pain. When something that you are placing your confidence in, let me just be straightforward, for your happiness deserts you, don't run from the pain. Sometimes the best thing, and I speak from experience, sometimes the best thing that can happen to us is to have our false confidences exposed. And you know when they're exposed when they're gone and all you feel is pain. It's not hard to figure out. We might feel like our life is over. We might feel like that we have died, that we have had our final day. But what is happening is actually a good thing. The pain is an indication of where our faith has been. Church, I was at back in Australia. I remember talking to um, an older gentleman once after the service, and who had recently, re- who had not long retired. And he said to me, when I retired, I just felt really down. I felt low. I felt, you know, I just felt like, it was, you know, you know he's just expressing uh, what sounded a bit like depression. And, um, and then he talked to someone else in the church. And they said, you're not depressed. You just need something else to do. So now he's going on cruises around the world. Do you understand what's happened there? He just replaced his work, the thing that he was placing his confidence in and trusting and hoping, and now that's gone. He feels like he's died. And now he goes and picks up on something else. Exchanged one gospel for another. What would have been the more mature course of action? To understand what the pain is all about, you see? To understand what the pain is all about. To understand, oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling really, really... Put in your word. Because I've been trusting this too much. This is where my hopes and plans and dreams have been. And and that's why I'm feeling like I am. I don't need... To go and turn to a cruise, I need to turn to who? The one that I talk about and sing about in my head now needs to be there for my heart, you see? That's what Tozer means when he says, we've got all these theological ideas in our head, but for our heart there is nothing there. And when our heart is exposed and we find that there's nothing there, what do we do? We turn to a cruise and the point is no turn to jesus believe that he is more than for your mind and your head that he is there for your heart that he's there to satisfy your heart read the psalms to get that contrast this gentleman i was talking about and i don't i don't honestly mean to criticise any body that I use in illustrations, because I really could just use myself in all of them, but you'd start to wonder whether I even kind of get the stuff if I just... But contrast this with another guy, a pastor, not Gary, (laughs) just in case you might have wondered, it's not me either, by the way, who um, I was talking with, and he said to me, I'm... I'm working way too much. I'm out four nights a week um, and it's just way too much and I, I I don't know what to do and and so we talked and I said, can you not kind of take the time that you're taking out in the evening and and then take that off say from three o'clock to six o'clock at night and be with your family so so in in effect, just work. You know, so you're working too much. Okay, so you're out too many nights a week. Okay, you can't avoid that. So instead of working all that time during the day, just say, well, I'm not going to... I'm going to take this three hours out here. I'm going to have that off because I'm working tonight, right? Seems like a simple kind of plan. But the more we talked about it, the more I sensed that he didn't really want... He, that he couldn't do that. I didn't want, and, and so finally I said to him, is there a, is there a problem doing this and then he said well yeah there is because then my I'll had to take time away from my sermon preparation and you see what came out was that the issue really was that working these nights was putting pressure on his sermons and that was putting pressure on when he got up on the pulpit on sunday to do a good job. And you see, he was putting his hopes and confidence in the fact of being a good preacher. I'm, I'm not telling you anything that he hasn't told me. And so we talked about that. Talked about my experience. And I said, how about you do this? And, and this is not what I said to him, but this is effectively what we were talking about. How about the gospel goes from the head to the heart? How about the fact that and, and once again, understand that this is not how I spoke to him, but he totally, we to, you know, he understood what we were on about. I said, how about you go from trusting in Jesus in your head to now saying, okay, I'm not going to get as much time to work on my sermons, but you know what? I'm going to trust that Jesus is my worth, that he died for me, that he's my hope, that my, that my day doesn't come to an end because a sermon doesn't go well. That he is everything I could ever want. That he loves me unconditionally. That he's poured out his hope. That he's poured out his grace and love upon me. That 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 I have nothing. That I have nothing else in this world that I couldn't find in him. Does that make sense? How? In other words, how about trying to trying to find that Jesus is for your heart. That that empty space that's there for your heart that you want to fill in preaching. Put Jesus there. I hope that makes sense. Sometimes explain these things and I wonder if it came out right. But do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? There's an opportunity for the heart to find good news every time you feel pain when something has left you. That's the point. And we, Satan's greatest deception to us today is, pain's not good, go and fill it with something else. That's what Israel, Israel have run off. Their king has gone, their king has died. Oh, it's all hopeless. When really what they should be doing is turning to the living God, understanding the reason for their pain. Years ago, we sold our first house in Australia. It was on the Sunshine Coast and uh, it was the house where, I'm not sure if I've told this before, but it was the house where we raised our three boys. Two of them were born there. You know, and if any of you are parents, you look back, probably on that time as you know, one of the most wonderful times in your life when you're raising kids, you know, it's nappies and they go to school and you're teaching them reading and all that kind of stuff. And that was the memories I had of this house. And we were selling it. And I remember standing in the kitchen one day, with had, my, had a good friend there, and I remember standing with a real estate agent, just going through all the contract and stuff, signing the contract to put it on the market. I remember standing there getting teary. I thought, good night, I can't let him, I can't cry in front of a real estate agent. But then it was, then it was like just a clear message from the Lord. And this is what I heard. Oh, you know, nothing freak or anything like that. Just Alan, if you can't let go of this house, How are you going to be able to let go of your life when your your day finally comes? It's helped me. Because all of life is a training ground for that final day. See, all of life is letting go, isn't it? There are letting go of all sorts of things. Relationships, finances, jobs, you name it. Bad sermon, all sorts of things that we have to let let go of through life. And every time we do, you will notice if it's really important to you that a part of you dies. But it's so important that we see that as training ground for the final day. Every time that happens, it's an opportunity to experience the good news, not in our heads, but in our hearts. And the way that we do that is not by running from the pain, but by running to Jesus. If we can't do that, he's not good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he came and he died, that he rose again, that he defeated the enemy, that he is there for our hearts. That he's not someone that we merely trust in for heaven, but he is someone that we trust in right now. Please help us all. We can all resonate with this. We all have our various struggles. We all have our things that we are tempted to place our hopes and faith in. In Jesus' name, amen.